Cool. Good morning again. Uh, one of the things I forgot to mention is that we have a, on a fifth Sunday, every time we have a fifth Sunday, we pull out, we pray for the, the prayer shawl ministry. Uh, if you don't know, we have a, a wonderful group of folks who gather, uh, I believe it's the third Saturday of every month, and they make a whole bunch of, of cool things. It's not just shawls, it's a whole bunch of other things, uh, but that's how it started, so that's what they're called. But we pray for these because we, we want to pray for who they go to. They go to people that are in distress, to, to widows, to those who are hurting, to those who need comfort and care. Sometimes they go to, to new babies. Uh, sometimes they'll go to women in ministries like Rahab. And so let's just take a moment before we get into the sermon and just pray for, for that pile of, of stuff uh, and more than the pile for what it represents. God, we thank you. We thank you that we have an opportunity uh, that seems so small but can be so impactful to reach out to the community around us. And so we pray for the, the people that are represented who will be wearing the items on this table. It's not so much about the items and what they are and who made them, but it's about the, the way in which they can serve your kingdom by providing some hope and some care and some love. We pray that there are people in this area that know that they are loved by the gifts that they receive, that someone would think about them, that care about them, to sit down and to create something with their hands out of a love for them. And that through that, they might experience the love of Christ in a tangible way. We love you and praise you. And all those people said, amen. 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 It's a good and beautiful thing. Well, in, uh, in, in the morning, on Sunday morning, on a random Sunday in 1933, there was a, a, a young pastor by the name of Joachim Hosen Elder. I'm, I'm saying it like an American would say it, not the German Hosen Elder, you know. Um, but that was, that was his name. He was a pastor in Germany, a young preacher. And he, he got up in the Willem Memorial Church in, in the central of Berlin, a very prominent church, a well-known church in Berlin. You would think of it as like the park side of our area. It was the church that everybody knew where it had the famous, you know, the well-known pastor preaching. And he got up and he preached a sermon in that church. And that text that he preached is this morning's problematic passage. The problematic thing with that passage as it was preached on that Sunday was that it was a text that had a tremendous influence in creating this blind obedience to the Nazi party in Germany. I'm not going to say that the sermon was responsible for the creation of the, you know, it was a, a party that existed long before that, but it was filled, a church filled with people that were, that were Nazis or Nazi sympathizers, and the sermon that was preached was all about the blind obedience to the governmental authority. And so because of that sermon, a lot of people kind of were spurred on. And throughout, if you, if you study the, the World War II era from a German perspective, one of the things they spend a lot of time on is trying to answer the question of how could an entire country follow that level of evil, right? When you hear Germany, that's the first thing you think of is Hitler and World War II and the annihilation of the Jewish people. And so as someone who grew up in Germany, who studied history sitting in classrooms in Germany, that's what we spend a lot of time on there is trying to explain that. And one of the things that was used was religious proof texting. And so there's passages that were misconstrued or, or taught in ways that showed people that it was important and that if God was to be honored, they had to have allegiance to the Nazi party. And so you bring religion into the play and you can see how scripture can be used to cause a tremendous amount of damage. That text on that day in 1933 and our problematic passage for this morning is Romans 13 verses 1 through 7. 
We're in a series, if you haven't been paying attention, called Problematic Passages. Each week we go through a passage of scripture that is really difficult to understand. Maybe it's just hard, maybe it's confusing, maybe it's downright strange like Moses and the foreskin from our first week. But whatever the passage, they are ones that are submitted by you, members of the congregation, uh, for us to talk about. And so of all the people that have submitted stuff, we picked kind of the seven that looked like they were the most intriguing, and here we are. So this morning we're in Romans 13, and sometimes when the passage is submitted, a question comes with it. And the question that is asked along with the passage for today is, does the Bible command us to constantly, without question, obey the authority of the government? And when you read this passage, it seems to suggest that it does command that. And so that's our dilemma, our problem this morning. So I want to invite us to stand as we read from God's Word in Romans 13, and then we'll try to get into it together. Hear the word, Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval." For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. It's the word of the Lord. Have a seat. So if you dislike the politics of our day, I'm really sorry. (laughs) We could just say amen here. Listen to your politicians. No, this obviously presents a whole host of challenges, right? We, we clearly see this command of the Lord, this is Paul talking in Romans, that we are to obey the authorities. Now, before we get too far into the passage, we have to pause and remember the author, right? We're talking about Paul. This is written by him to the Christians in Rome. And, and Paul's experience with government is not the rosiest experience that we could possibly imagine. Right? We're talking about a man whose history, whose interactions with governments have been that he's generally brought before the officials, reprimanded, beaten, and imprisoned, or thrown out of town on a pretty regular basis. Right? Paul has a track record of, of annoying and ticking off and going against the governmental authorities so that they want to punish him, beat him, imprison him, or throw him out pretty much wherever he goes. Right? And so the Paul who has had governments annihilate upon him and just keep piling it on, the government who has put him in jail numerous times, time and time again, those authorities are the ones that he is writing about in such a positive light. I don't know about you, Paul to me seems to be a prime candidate for for being an anarchist, right? When you think about like the, the kind of people who become anarchists, it's usually people who government has severely wronged in many ways, 
Paul, to me, seems to fit that bill. So you have to wonder, like, why on earth is Paul not an anarchist? Right? No one obey the government. The government's crazy. The government's corrupt. The government's, there's conspiracy there all over the place. Don't listen to them. You would expect to find those kinds of words come from Paul, but yet he tells us here that all rulers that, have, that exist, all rulers, there's not some, every person in the history of the world, past, present, and future, who is ever put in any kind of position of governmental power, Every senator, every president, every king, every dictator, every ruling authority is instituted by God himself. And none of them would be there if not for God wanting them to be there. Now, I don't know about you. I have a lot of problems with that. And, and we can take a moment to step aside from, from the political stage of the United States and we can just look at the world as it currently stands in history. There are a whole bunch of governments, rulers, authorities, dictatorships, people that, that make this passage really troublesome. Is he really saying that Kim Jong-un is instituted by God and is there because God wants him there? Is that what he's saying? Or is there something more or deeper to this? You see how this passage becomes a real problem, right? Even when taken outside of the world of, of American politics. This is a real challenge. And so what does this mean for us? Are we called to obey our government? Are we called to honor our government? Are we called to turn a blind eye to the things that our government does that seem contradictory to our own political ideologies? How does all of this play together? That's the point of this morning. And so let's look a little deeper in this passage, right? And so from the get-go, we need to note a couple things. Before we dig into what this passage is saying, we got to be really clear about what it isn't saying. There's some things we think we might hear in this that we don't hear. Number one is this. This passage does not tell us in any way what to do when the government departs from the word of God. Question of what do I do when the government compels me to do or say something that goes against what God commands me to do or say? It does not address that question. It doesn't try to address that question. It's a natural question that we have that comes out of the text and we want to kind of answer it for the text, but inside of this text, it's not talking about that. So we're not, get, we're not getting into that just in this passage. We'll dig in a little later, but not, not from this passage. It doesn't tell us what to do when the government compels us to go against the word of the Lord, right? So we'll, we'll get to there. Number two, it doesn't make any statements or hints about political parties or affiliations. It doesn't suggest that one political party or ideology is better. It doesn't even talk about different types of politics, right? It, it talks about rulers and authorities. It doesn't say presidents. It doesn't say senators. It doesn't say prime ministers. It doesn't say kings. It doesn't say dictators. It's a general kind of conversation. And so three, it doesn't say anything about what kind of government is best. This passage is not a passage you can use to justify a certain way of doing government or a certain type of way of governing the people, like a dictatorship or a system of democracy or a system of parliamentary politics or a monarchy or those kinds of things. It just doesn't get into that whatsoever. So in some ways, while we're talking about things political, this isn't a political sermon at all. This is what we would call supra-politic, above politics. So if you're a person who hates politics sermons, rest assured, this isn't about politics, especially not about the, the specific politics we talk about 
in the United States, right? This isn't a Republican-Democrat sermon. This isn't a socialist sermon. This isn't in any way a politically associated sermon. This is about the way God calls us to relate to the government authorities, whatever they are in any place in time, okay? So hear that. If you hear somehow that Vince is a proponent of Republicans or Democrats or something like that by the end of the sermon, you heard me wrong and you should come talk to me and get clarity. just want to make that abundantly clear. So let's dig into the text. Paul starts here really, really directly, right? Let every person be subject to the government authorities. And then, after he says that opening, he tells us exactly why they should be subject to governing authorities. We should be subject to the governing authorities because God has instituted them. And so, obedience to government is obedience to God in some way. God puts government in place. And so, if it's something that God has put there for us to be subject under... Well, then it's the will of the Lord that we would be subject under it. Otherwise, we, we wouldn't be there. Right? Now, we might not understand the why. It might be confusing to us. Why would the Lord subject us to an evil government or a corrupt government or any of those or a dictatorship or those kinds of things? But what we have to assume from this passage is there is a reason that that power exists because God put it there. Because God is all powerful. And if he wanted any authority on earth wiped from the face of the earth, he would snap his fingers and it would be so. You might not like it, but if an authority exists on this earth, it is there because God is allowing it to be there for whatever reason or purpose. We can debate what those reasons are, but why do we obey governments? Because it is from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So then, from there, he, he reasons that resisting authority is akin to resisting God himself because he put them in place. So if you resist a God-ordained authority, you incur the judgment of the Lord. This passage is pretty clear about that, right? Next, Paul gives us the reason for which God has instituted government and authorities. Why would God put government in this world? Why not just rule? Right? I mean, after all, isn't that the promise of the new heavens and the new earth? I will be your God, you will be my people, you get to walk with me and talk with me. We long for the new Jerusalem, right? Where there is no, there's no more Republicans or Democrats or, or dictators or kings or anything like that. There's no socialism or capitalism. There's just God walking around with us telling us what to do and we are following him because there's no more sin, right? We long for that. But do you understand that there's actually nowhere in scripture that seems to suggest that government won't exist in the new heavens and new earth? It's possible that it won't, but Scripture doesn't tell us that very clearly, does it? The Lord will be in charge. Well, the Lord's in charge now. Right? The Lord will tell us how we are to live and conduct ourselves. Well, the Lord does that now. Right? The difference is sin is removed, and so we can ask questions about whether government is necessary in the new heavens and new earth, but Scripture doesn't tell us that it'll be gone. It's a part of things. And why does God put governments on this earth. And the primary reason he tells us is this. For rulers, verse 3, are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. And then later, when he talks about being subject to them, right, what does he say? But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he, the authority, does not bear the sword in vain, for he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Why did God institute authorities of, of government structures in this world? To be the avenger. It's a great title. So whoever our president is, they are the avenger of God. As a Marvel fan, that makes me smile a little bit. 
But their main purpose is to dole out wrath to the wrongdoer. That's the main reason they exist. So be afraid if you do wrong, because government does not bear the sword in vain. They're not just wielding power out of thin air. The government's job is to rein in evildoers, to make sure that justice occurs so much as possible in this world. For those that do wrong, it's the opposite of anarchy, right? We had the time of judges in scripture, and what does it say? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It was complete and utter chaos. Government brings order to a people that are sinful and require there to be order. Now, does it do this perfectly? Oh, gosh, no. (laughs) Is there any government that has ever existed or will ever exist on this earth that will do this perfectly? No, absolutely not, right? But it exists, and and it's a necessary thing that it exists, so that the wrongdoers can be held accountable and brought to justice and to prevent, to deter any one of us from being wrongdoers. And so that's Paul's argument. He goes, look, the Lord, the Lord put governments in place to make sure that we are, are, are functioning this way. And so the authority given to government relates to keeping the peace and punishing evil. Right? And at, at this point, we need to start to step out of Romans 13 a little bit into the bigger picture of the book of Romans, right? It's worth kind of looking at some, and one of the passages that we want to look at is Romans 12. This is towards the end of chapter 12 before we get to our text for today, and here's what it says. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So in Romans 12, God commands that we don't exact vengeance on our enemies. We are not the ones that that are going to make sure justice happens in this world. As individual Christians, we are not to be the executors of vengeance or justice in this world. The Lord says, vengeance is mine and I will repay. And Paul finishes by calling Christians at the very end of chapter 12 to love and feed and provide for their enemies, which I'm sure everyone here is just dying to do. But that's, that's the command, right? So when we can see then that God has a plan for dealing with those enemies that is outside of you individually, right? What the Lord says is he invites us as Christians to trust him with the judgment and the justice part of life. And authorities in government are part of the way that God is handling that, right? What Paul is saying in 12 and 13 is, look, vengeance and justice aren't to be your concern. Your concern is to live peaceably and in love in this world. And I, God, am going to take care of the vengeance and justice peace. Well, how are you going to do that? Well, many ways. One of the ways I'm going to do that is by instituting government's authorities over the people. They're a part of the solution. That's why government justice is never perfect, right? It's not his only plan, right? God has plans B, C, D, E, and F for how we handle injustices in this world. And someday it will be through the ultimate judgment when every good deed goes punished, whether it's by wrath and fire or by the grace of Christ crucified, right? But that's the pattern that he sets up for you as Christians. He says, Lord, you guys need to give peace and love everywhere you can, leave justice to me, Part of the way I'm handling that justice, government authorities. So submit to them, because I put them there. That's kind of the gist of it. Then he moves on to verse 5. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of 
conscious. We don't just avoid listening to the government so that God's not mad at us, but we do it because our Christian conscience compels us to. Because if we believe that God put something there for a good purpose and reason, and we believe that God is good and all-loving and all-knowing, well, then we don't just want to listen to the government out of fear that God will smite us. We want to listen to the government because we trust that when God says it's a good thing, it's a good thing, even when it seems like not a good thing. Because our understanding is inferior to his understanding. That's what he's saying in verse 5. And then he lays out what this subjection kind of looks like in practical terms. And he hits the things that the people of this time would have had the most issue with, right? What's the number one thing that the Jewish people hated about the Roman Empire? Taxes. So the first thing he says is, listen, pay your taxes. And if we look throughout scripture, Paul doesn't only tell the, the Jews to pay their taxes, to pay what they're owed in fairness, but he tells them to pay it in joy. Any of you, April 15th, writing checks? Like, doop, doop, doop. Paying my, pay my taxes. Here you go, government. This is yours. Spend it well. Anybody smile on their face in April? No? You don't have to be an accountant to hate April. There's a few of you that, like, you know, the, the tax benefits, you know, you got a big refund coming, so maybe you're happy on tax day. But generally, a big refund just means that you did something wrong throughout the year in terms of how you got your money back. So it's really not that you're getting a big refund. It's that the government had too much of your money for the whole year, and now they're making it right. So think of it that way. The next time you have a refund check, don't be so happy. Anyway, taxes are the first thing. That one was free. That was a tangent economics lesson that you can do whatever you want with. Um, but taxes are the first thing that Paul hits. He says, look, pay your taxes to whom taxes are owed. Everybody should get what they're owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. And then he hits the, the next thing that the Jews have the most problem with and that we probably have problem with. And he says, respect to whom respect is owed and honor to whom honor is owed. And there end our instructions for who, how we are to relate to government authority. Obey the government, pay the fair share of taxes, revenue to revenue to whoever it's owed, honor to whoever gets honor, and respect to whomever gets respect. And quite frankly, taxes, honor, and respect are probably one of the three things that I have the most problems with when it comes to how I want to relate to the government at times, depending on who happens to be in power at any given day, right? We, we generally have unhappiness with how taxes function. Uh, most of us, uh, depending on who's sitting in the White House at any given moment, about half the people in this room don't really want to respect that person. The other half of the room wants to worship that person. And then in four years, it flips, and it's the different side that wants to disrespect and the other side that wants to honor, and we get divisive over all these things, and right? Like, this honor and respect and pay your fair share thing is really difficult for us as God's people to process. So how are we to obey this passage? Do we really need to constantly obey our government? Yes and no. Right? Let's, let's look at some guiding principles here. Number one, we get a hint about the way that authority in Scripture is structured by looking not just at this passage, but at Romans 12. The whole chapter, right? Romans 12, if, you, if you're not familiar with the book of Romans, I know a few years ago when Bob was still here, we preached through it for like two years. But the book of Romans essentially breaks up like this. The first 11 chapters are, are what I would call like marine boot camp, right? You go to boot camp, you think you're something, and you have a whole bunch of people yelling at you for, for days on end, telling you that you're nothing. They beat you down. They take every ounce of dignity away from you as a human being. They strip you bare, so that you're just laying on the floor, cold, dead, and worth nothing, right? And then, once you're nothing, they start to build you back up. 
into something. And they build you all into the same unified something. And then they call you a Marine. Paul does this with the gospel. The first 11 chapters of, Rome, of Romans are Paul describing to you in every possible, direct, brash, imaginable way how, how filthy of a sinner you are. He calls you filthy rags. He calls us filthy rags. He tells us that we're dead, completely dead in our trespasses and sins. And then he unpacks the gospel. He tells us, you're dead, but Christ. Christ came and he made you alive. And, and you owe him everything that you have. Because the Lord picked you up and when you were wretched and undeserving, while you were still sinners, Christ died for us. When every one of us was filthy and undeserving, Christ died. And that's where chapter 11 kind of ends. And then 12 hits, and we get this beautiful passage. This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. 12 comes and it says, Therefore, in view of God's mercy, like in light of the fact that you were dead and now you're alive, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Right? Don't conform anymore to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, don't, don't function the way the world does. Ditch that. Let your mind be renewed by me because you're a new creation physically. Now I'm going to make you a new creation mentally. I'm going to have you start thinking the way my kingdom thinks, not the way the world's kingdom thinks. I'm going to transform and renew your mind on a daily basis. And the way that you think it works isn't the way it works anymore. I want everything. You were dead. I saved you. I made you alive. Now I want the whole of you. Well, what do you want the whole of me for? I want the whole of you so that through you in this world, my glory might be displayed to all people. Well, how am I going to be used to display the glory to all people? Well, you're going to do things differently. Remember how in the Old Testament I called the Israelites out of Egypt and I gave them all kinds of crazy weird laws that set them apart from the way that the world around them functioned? They weren't allowed to eat shellfish even though there's really nothing wrong with shellfish because there were people that ate shellfish and I wanted them to look different from those people so I, gave, I made them distinct and when others hated I made them love and when others did this I made them do this to be different to show them that the way of the kingdom of God is different than the way of the kingdom of the world. I'm going to do the same thing with you. So when the world freaks out about every possible government situation that could be, when the world panics in fear because there's a dictator over them that's oppressing them, when everybody loses their minds because the politician got elected that they didn't vote for, you aren't going to be like that. You are going to be different. You are going to submit to their authority. And you are going to show them honor. And you are going to dignify them and give them all the respect that they deserve as a person that I have ordained in that place. President Biden is our president. I love some things he does. I hate many things he does. It does not matter. He is worthy and deserving of honor and respect and dignity from each and every one of us who calls on the name of Christ by the nature of the fact that he is the elected president and God has put him in that seat for better or for worse. Is he always doing what the Lord wants? No. Is he always a godly president? No. No president in the world has ever been always a godly president. Not one. 
But he's there in that seat right now. And a couple years ago, Trump was in that seat. And a couple years ago, we had Obama in that seat. And then Bush and then Clinton. And I don't care what you think about any of them. The Lord says they have been put there and they deserve authority and respect. Well, how can you respect them? They blatantly disregard the Christian faith. Don't worry about that. I put them there. Your job is to respect them. And by that, you will show that you trust me more than you trust the government. By giving them honor and respect constantly. So that's why you are to submit to the authorities. It's not because they're always right. As a matter of fact, most often they aren't. But you're going to do it to demonstrate that you trust in something bigger than that. And that no matter how much they screw up, you serve a God who is able to rise above all of it. And people are going to ask, how can you be so calm? How can you have a trust? How can you not worry about the current administration ruining every good thing that has ever been built by the prior administration, which is always the argument we have, no matter who is in office, right? How can you, how can you, not, how can you not worry? How aren't you pulling all your money out of your 401k and burying gold in your backyard or moving to Canada or whatever it is that your current conspiracy theory of your friends are all into, right? How can you not be this way? That's because I trust that there's a God who is above all of these politicians and leaders and dictators and kings and everyone else that rules on this earth and that God put them there to keep some semblance of peace that no matter how bad a dictator is it's still always a little better than anarchy he put them there and I and I'm going to trust that God will bring good out of this and so I'm going to show honor right that's what we do when God calls us to obey the government so we can see the way that God calls people into obedience. Christians are able to see the big picture. And so they're informed consciences. They're able to live in this profound subjection to something that's not always perfect, not always good, not always right, because they know that God is in control and he'll take care of it in the end. Well, if the current president continues, we're not going to have retirement funds in 10 years. You don't think God can work through that? Oh, the laws that are being made are very anti-Christian. We live in one of the least oppressive times in all of Christian history. If churches lose their tax status, they'll cease to exist. You don't think God can rise above that? You don't think the Lord will sustain his church through taxes? Look at church history. Have you seen some of the things that God has carried his church through? Taxes are the thing that's going to kill it? Really? Really? If you think the Lord's church can be killed by by tax codes, you have another thing coming. Believe you me, the Lord is in control of all things. We demonstrate it by obedience. The next principle is that government authority is granted by God. So there's a clear hierarchy here, right? It's, It's important to understand that. How are we to relate in our obedience to the government? We understand that when we listen to the government's authority, that that authority comes from something bigger. A lot of people in this world operate as if government authority is the final thing. Well, the Supreme Court is the final arbiter of justice. No, they aren't. God is the final arbiter of justice. And so we, as God's people, we understand that we obey government within the scope of what the Lord ordained it to be. And what that means is we obey government insofar as it doesn't cause us to disobey God. One of the best instances that we see this play out is in Acts 5. Peter and the apostles have been 
kind of preaching and teaching the word of the Lord, and they've been called in by the authorities over and over again, and, and they keep reprimanding them and saying, stop preaching, and they send them back out, and they keep preaching, and they bring them back in, and stop preaching, and they send them back out, and they keep preaching, and bring them back in, and then they want to throw them in jail, and they say, listen, if you don't stop preaching, we're going we're gonna to put you in prison, and this is what they reply. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. What you see here is not a dishonoring of the government structures. They come before the the people that are in charge. They're they're not hooting and hollering. They're not yelling. They're not speaking derogatory things about the the leadership. They're not getting together in in their churches on Sunday and talking about how awful it is. They're not sharing you know, memes of the Roman officials that are degrading or anything like that. They're, they're, they're honoring those who are above them, but when those people start to tell them to do things that go against God's word, they just simply, quietly disobey. Because we know that the authority of our government is given by the Lord. And because of that, any authoritative statements that come from God are above what comes from the government. And so when there is a conflict between what the authorities tell us to do and what the Lord tells us to do, we are to obey God rather than men. There is a clear permission to disobey the government when it goes against what God has for us or when it violates your Christian conscience. Maybe you're pro-life. You cannot be compelled to work for an abortion clinic. Right? I'm not getting into the argument about abortion. I'm just using it as an example. Right? That would be a violation of what you feel the Lord has called you to. No, you are a proponent of life. You don't, you don't go against that by working somewhere where you're, you know, maybe you're a, a pacifist. You're not going to go work for Lockheed Martin. If the government says you have to go make weapons for them, you're going to say, no, I feel like the Lord calls me to be a pacifist. I'm not saying that you have to be a pacifist. I'm not a pacifist. But if you are, then your conscience compels you to obey God rather than man in that instance. So there are clear places in Scripture, while Romans 13 doesn't address what do we do when the government causes us to go against the Bible, there are passages in Scripture that clearly do address that. But what Paul is saying in Romans 13 is, look, if it doesn't require you to disobey God, you have to listen. Well, I don't really like that law. I don't really care. I think property taxes are unconstitutional. I don't really care what you think. That's a law. Obey it. And obey it joyfully. Because God has put that authority over you to keep the peace. And if it doesn't compel you to go against Scripture, we are to obey. God is the one who has ultimate authority. It's interesting. If we look through Scripture, the only authority that we obey blindly at all times with no exception is the authority of God. Every other authority that is talked about in the Bible, has limits. The governmental authority has limits. When we talk about things like wives submit to your husbands, there's a lot of limits on that, right? That doesn't mean that wives do everything their husbands say, for the love of God, no, right? We talked about that a few weeks ago when we were in Ephesians and how that actually works itself out, right? Children are to obey their parents, but not all the time, right? There are things your parents could compel you to do that would cause you to say no, right? What if your parents try to get you to commit a crime? The Lord commands us to not, so we're going to disobey our parents there, right? What if you're a Christian and your parents aren't, and they tell you that you're not allowed to go to church? Well, 
There's a point in which you actually have authority by God to disobey earthly authorities that are placed in your life. And, and Acts 5 is a pretty clear-cut path to when we are permitted to disobey. Right? God is the one who places authorities. So he is the ultimate one we serve. As Daniel says in Daniel 2.21, Blessed be the name of God. He sets up kings and he removes kings. That's the God that we serve. Next, we have to wrestle with the reality of an evil government, right? If we're called to honor and obey government, well, what about when it's evil? Well, we have to understand that government needs to be kept in its proper place. Um, there's a really great quote. It's kind of long, but it's by a guy named Richard Halverson. And if you don't know who he is, he served for many, many years as the chaplain of the United States Senate. Here's what he says about how we relate as Christians to government. To be sure... Men will abuse and misuse the institution of the state, just as man, because of sin, has abused and misused every other institution in history, including the church of Jesus Christ. But this doesn't mean that the institution is bad or that it should be forsaken. It simply means that men are sinners and rebels against God's world, and this is the way they behave with good institutions. As a matter of fact, it's because of this sin that there must be human government to maintain order in history until the final and ultimate rule of Jesus Christ is established. Human government is better than anarchy, and the Christian must recognize the divine right of the state. You don't have to like everything your government does. As a matter of fact, it'd be weird if you did. It'd probably be concerning if you liked everything about the government, no matter who's in charge. Right? But we are compelled to obey it, because it's better than the alternative. Because God knows if we don't have earthly authority over us, our sin will compel us into a kind of anarchy that no one in this room wants to imagine. Right? So the Lord graciously gives us ruling authorities over us to keep things from completely disintegrating into sinful chaos until the day in which he comes again and establishes his rule and reign forever. Right? Let me conclude with just a couple practical kind of exhortations that we pull out of Romans 13 for our own context as we go forward. Number one, we are called clearly to obey government above us. Right? You can't get around it. You are to be obedient to the laws of the land even if you don't like them. Only when it requires you to disobey God can you choose to disobey the government. Christians should be known as the best citizens in this country. As followers of Christ, you should be model citizens in terms of how you relate to your government. And unless the Lord's word is contrary to what the government tells you to do, you should obey it, even if you don't like it. That stinks. <laughs> that's not something we like to hear. And if you, if you hear me saying that that's a simple, simple command, that's not. That's really hard. We love to complain about our government. And we love to find every possible loophole about how we can disobey and how we can get out of this. And right, we love to, we only broke the speed limit by five miles an hour. So like, it's not really that big of a deal. It should be 40 in there anyway, right? Like we like to, we like to disobey by our nature because we're sinners. That's what we do, right? Second, and this is the hard one. There is a heavy emphasis in, in Romans 13 about this idea of honor. And this is something that we as, uh, as people, as sinful people, but really, I mean, Americans in particular, we have a really hard time with this. The way in which we obey and the way in which we treat and speak of the authorities around us matters tremendously. You are called, and this is where it gets hard, to demonstrate 
honor to those who are in authority over us. To your mayors and your, your, your congressmen, right? to your reps and your senators and your governor and your president and all of those people. You are called to demonstrate honor towards them, respect towards them, love towards them, to speak highly of them, to not belittle them through funny memes about their age and mental capacities on the internet. Now I'm meddling, right? This is where it gets ugly. One of these days, someone's going to walk out. I just keep waiting for it to happen. Right? I don't want it to happen, but it's going to someday. One of the things we do a really poor job at, and Christians are no better at this than anyone else, is we belittle the people that have been put over us when we disagree or dislike their policies or their actions or their choices. Right? And one of, the, one of the best things we as Christians can do is we can start to, to actively separate right, the people from the office and, and more than that, the people from their actions. Right? It's, it's not wrong to criticize government. At no point is Paul saying that you need to have a, um, you know, oh, that, that, that rule's great. It's great. I love that rule. It's great. It's, it's really great. It's great. No. You can criticize policy, right? We can, we can even criticize policy in church. There's times where you will see me criticize governmental policies from the pulpit. This idea that we don't talk politics from the pulpit is nonsense. We'll get there. But what, what you're not going to hear me do is, is take a partisanship approach you're not going to hear me advocate for you to be a, a Republican or a Democrat or a, a socialist or anything else. What you're going to hear me ever do is to fight for things that are policy. So what we would do as a church is we would speak for the right to life. Right? But it has nothing to do with who's in the office. And I can crit critique a policy or a choice or an action of any leader that is in our government while still respecting them as a person. If you are shredding any of our politicians in person, in emails, on the phone, online, through memes sent to your husband or wife that you think are funny, hear me very clearly. You are going against the commands of the Lord. If you're mocking people that are in ruling authority over us, you're going against the commands of the Lord. We are called to demonstrate honor. Now that is wicked hard. This might be one of the hardest things that I compel you to, to do, that I exhort you to do from the Word of God in the entire year, if not in the entire pastorate. Man, we are so ingrained in, in, in the beauty of political criticism, right? You have friends. I guarantee you have friends whose your entire friendship is built on making fun of, us, of, of, of politicians. You haven't, you haven't said a word to them. You get together, you have a beer, and you talk about how you know, Biden or Trump or Pelosi or McCarthy, whoever it is in office, are just ruining our country. When I was in seminary, um, there was a McDonald's right next to the seminary, and I drove from Ohio to, to Pittsburgh to go to seminary um, every week for, for an overnight. And so I would get in really, really early because I like to beat the, the traffic in the morning, and then I would go have breakfast at the McDonald's that's right next to the seminary. And every single day when I was in there, there was a group of like 16 guys that are all over the age of 80, right? And they always got together for breakfast, and I loved to sit like a couple booths over just close enough that they didn't think I was eavesdropping, but I could hear every word. And it was like an hour of just, I'm ruining this country. 
our, our policy, you know, ruining this country. Taxes, unconstitutional. Like an hour long. He fell off his bike. <laughs> like, and, and what's compelling and weird about that time that I was listening to them, it wasn't what they were saying or not saying. It was that there was no substance. It wasn't a conversation about, look, well, here's a policy that I, that I saw in the newspaper, and you know, what do you think about it? I don't know that that's the best way of moving forward. I think it would probably be smarter if they would have done this. Well, we should advocate to that. Let's call a rep and actually get involved and, and try to make changes happen from the ground up in a way that's loving and, you know, man, they're, they're elected. You know, the country wanted them there, and I'm going I'm to give them respect and authority. One of the greatest things that you can do to start showing authority to politicians and people that are placed in, in power is by calling them by their titles. So it's not Trump, it's President Trump. It's not Sleepy Joe, it's President Biden. Right? It's not Socialist Pelosi, it's former Speaker of the House, Pelosi. Right? You see, just by, just by how we address people, we can actually start to demonstrate honor. Now, you might disagree with every policy that they have ever put in place. That's fine. You can do that. You have freedom to do that. You have freedom to critique. But we are people that are called to demonstrate honor to the person. And we separate the individual from the political views and actions that they hold and commit. That's what Romans 13 is trying to compel. By the way you interact with the authorities that are over you, you will demonstrate where your faith, hope, and trust truly lie. And if that sermon rubs you the wrong way, the Lord's trying to tell you something. Really sorry. The way I know that politics are one of the chargy things in our society is not just because I'm smart and read the paper, but we in the in the lobby in our I'm new area, we have a, a, a set of books there, you know, and it's like every book answers a question: What does the Bible say about baptism? What does the Bible say about giving? What is what do you believe about membership? Like, if you want to know what we believe about certain things, you can go read those those little pamphlets, and they'll tell you. And one of the pamphlets is, you know. What, what does God say about how I interact with people of different political views? And that's the one book I've had to replace six times. I have yet, there's, there's seven or eight books in each category. I have yet to have to refill any of the other stacks, but that one I have refilled six times. <laughs> it's divisive, and it's hard, and I know it's hard. Right? I don't care what your political ideology is. This isn't about what you think or who you think of and who you think should be president or senator or any of those things. This isn't about your own political views. This is about you having trust in a God that goes above and beyond all of those things. Are you going to live a life with how you interact with the authorities that demonstrates that your faith in no way relies upon any of them? Right? If you are a follower of Christ, then you know that there's not a policy, not a law, not a thing that any government now or future could ever do that will diminish Christ's rule and reign one day. And no matter what happens in this country, no matter how oppressed we ever get, no matter what we're compelled to do, no matter what restrictions we have placed upon us, no matter how heavily you're taxed, no matter how heavily the government rips out of your 401k every single year, no matter what happens, the Lord has you, and he will have you, and you will spend eternity with him in glory. That's where your hope and your faith and your trust should lie. And the more it does, the more you're free to not worry so much and to demonstrate radical love, honor, respect, and obedience. That's what the Lord calls us to in Romans 13. Let's pray. God, we...
Oh, man, we just want to seek your face this morning. We are so nature-bent on trusting in the things of this world more than the things of you. It's just who we are as, as sinners. It just grips us. We, we know that you're good, and we know that you're there, and we know that you care for us, but we just want to make sure that we help you along a little bit. And so we, we get heavily invested in things of this world, which you have already ordained with all your authority. Lord, you know who the next president is, the next senators are. We, you, know, you know who the last president will be one of these days. You know all these things because you have set them in place in order to shape us as your people as we move closer and closer towards your kingdom. Lord, we, we pray for your kingdom to come. We don't want to have to live in this weird tension of, of knowing that you're in charge but also worrying about things like politics. We don't want to have to live in that. It's hard and it's divisive and it makes us turn against each other and speak all kinds of evil. And we, we want a world and we long for a, a place where every knee bows and every tongue confesses. Until then, Lord, though, we pray that you would remind us of your truth. And that you would empower us to lay down our need to be right. To belittle others in order to elevate ourselves that we would be able to just sometimes be silent. We pray that you would keep our fingers in check when we're clicking with our trackpads or our iPads or our phones. That you would allow us to be known as people that speak with love, with disagreement when necessary, even harsh disagreement, as the disciples and apostles did as well, but with love. Equip us to that end, Lord. We love you and praise you and all as people said together. Amen.